Hold on. Butterscotch shenanigans. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Coffee with Butterscotch, the game dev comedy podcast of Butterscotch shenanigans. I'm Seth, and I'm the games programmer. I'm Adam, and I'm the king of the internet tubes. And I'm Sam, and I make the pictures. Before we get started, we have a warning. Anything can happen on this show, so if you are sensitive or if you are young, uh, stop listening now and never come back. All right, let's jump right into the news. Yeah. Well, until you become less sensitive or older. Until you grow a beard. Until you toughen up and get bearded. What's in the news, gents? I don't know. You tell me. Somebody yeah, tell I'll tell me. you. There's uh, there's lots of stuff going on. Uh, I think we all we need to talk about Fallout Four. Let's just do it. You know, let's get it out of the way. It's a burdensome thing. It's what, in the way. What's Fallout Four? I haven't even I haven't even heard. Yeah, of, if you've of been this. on the internet or anywhere around places with the internet, you probably have heard of this game or television. 4. It was on Conan. It was on Conan, right? Which was also <laughs> hilarious. Um, Fallout Four, huge open world role playing game made by Bethesda. Uh, you know, hugely anticipated game came out this last week and I believe has consumed probably an entire humanity's worth of time, you know, up, up to now. How much is one humanity, Sam? I'm gonna go with about seven. About seven? Yeah. That sounds about right. Seven units. Seven units of humanity. So what's happening with Fallout 4? Well, so there's some interesting things that have been going on with it, which is that it's, of course, super popular. Everyone loves it. Because you get to <laughs> run around and, you know, shoot things in the face, which is just, it's just a joy. It's what we all live for. Uh, but there's this interesting thing, and I think it relates directly to what we talk about with, with the design of Crashlands and deciding to go inventoryless in particular with Crashlands, which is our upcoming enormous uh, open-world 2D uh, adventure mm-hmm. game. So it's kind of like a tiny, you know, more tiny one of these Fallout or Skyrim things. And there's this interesting gripe that's been coming out, which is that the designers of Fallout did a really good job of making all of the items actually useful. So it used to be that you'd run around and you'd pick up, like, cans garbage just garbage and they didn't do anything and they never did and so whenever you were over encumbered which was essentially you have a weight limit and you can only carry so much stuff and whenever you went above that limit your character kind of enters the slow crawl yeah it's weirdly binary it's like i can carry 300 pounds of stuff but once i hit 301 i'm completely crippled (laughs) i can no longer move yeah and i spent Every single moment of my time in all of the Fallout games, straddling that line. Yeah. Well, that's basically what happens. And it happens in if you played uh, Oblivion or any of the really big games that, that use a similar system, which all the Bethesda ones do, uh, it tends to be a big part of your gameplay is actually navigating menus and throwing stuff away whenever you find something interesting. But that is because you, like, the stuff is throwawayable. You don't need it. So you right. Can just toss right. it. Because you can always just basically sell it for some money at the end of the day. Was the idea. Yeah. And even still, my inventory was always full. Mm hmm. And so apparently this has become an even bigger problem now in Fallout 4 because they did they actually did a very good job making sure that all the stuff you pick up is essentially interesting. It's all useful for things, for crafting and other other uh, points. And so as a result, people are hoovering up everything. And I mean, like, and they need to, right? So it's like you need to pick up that toothbrush that's on the shelf. You need to pick up that teddy bear as well as rip the armor off that guy that you just killed and pick up his weapon. And as a result, people are getting over-encumbered so much that apparently it's, it's caused, it's sort of like the one design rift left in the game that's to sort of hold on to realism that is sort of coming under fire. But like we said, I mean, it's not even realistic, you know. If it, if it were, then it would be you'd sort of move a little bit slower with every additional item. Instead, it's just like, boom, suddenly you're encumbered and you can't move. Right. So. And it's super interesting where people decide to draw the line on this thing, I think, because you're right. Your character's running around and is ostensibly carrying, you know, 200 pounds of, like, forks and teddy <laughs> of bears. <stuff>. Yeah. <laughs> 
and yet is able to do you know impressive combat maneuvers and all this other stuff and then uh and then the idea that it just sort of like kicks in at some point well and to me this is interesting the the whole idea of having uh, a relatively small inventory in in an adventure game i find really interesting anyway from just a design perspective because you know why do it and then once you do it why have it be of a particular size because if you take something like don't starve Mm-hmm. which has a super limited, I mean, very, very limited inventory. And this is done for the reason that this is a survival game. The whole idea is that that's part of the the difficulty in the game is in having enough space to store your stuff. And the survival and the crafting and the inventory aspects are all literally the same mechanic. So it makes sense there. But if you take something like Fallout 4 or the other Fallout games, where the, the mechanics are effectively completely separate, the the crafting things mechanic and selling stuff and whatever and the adventuring part where you're off fighting things and upgrading your weapons and that sort of stuff they don't really interact actually in an interesting way they do interact in a negative way in a negative way exactly it's only in a negative way which is just when you run out of inventory space then all of a sudden your adventuring is compromised and so you can't just go out and adventure forever and then come back and be like oh i've got all this stuff now now let me go build stuff for a long time instead you have to keep on bouncing back and forth between those things where you never quite have enough stuff to craft what you want because you couldn't just go collect all of it at once Mm -hmm. and you can never just go continue your adventure because you have all this loot that you don't want to just lose and so you need to bring it back to your base so that yeah that's been an aspect i've always disliked from most games that have a limited inventory that are adventure games because those things inhibit each other instead of do something interesting together you can't go on an adventure if you're constantly having to go back home and dump your crap you know right so yeah and actually adam you were the one who when you came onto the team uh and we were working on crashlands it was your suggestion that we just get rid of the inventory system entirely Mm -hmm. and the thing is i think it's just something that's so prevalent and so much just an assumed part of any game where there is stuff that you can have uh i think we just hadn't thought about it and that may even be the case with fallout right Well, i think it usually comes down to the fact that that if you want access to all those things that you're picking up uh, most designers are not going to make a system robust enough to actually handle the sorting in an intelligent way, such that if you're carrying 10,000 items, for example, um, which you very easily could in a game like Fallout 4, and we'll get to that in a second, but if you're carrying 10,000 items, the question is no longer, uh, you know, do I, do I have the thing I want? The question is, how do I find what I it's, want? Yeah, like where is store. that fork? Yeah. Well, and especially because, that, and that, that problem is increased because of the fact that what players want and what developers are trying to give them is as much kinds of stuff as possible especially in these big open world games and so yeah you can't just stack a thousand kinds of junk because each one is a different kind of junk and especially if you want to try to make it so that each piece does something because that's a really cool and interesting selling point but the consequence of that means that you have this horrible to manage inventory right and so i think it's it's interesting now because so uh we are you know pretty much days away from hitting crashlands beta and target date Monday. Monday. So Monday. What date? What's the date of Monday? I have no idea. What's the date? date? We don't even know what, what time. What, what a year time is it? War. Uh, Monday, November twenty third. Crashlands beta will begin. And so this is interesting because Seth hasn't actually gotten to play the game uh, up until this point. What I mean by that is that we've we've made tons of changes to the game uh, per Adam and and I's and my changes uh suggested changes after playing through and building the story components for the game and as a result Seth's just been working for literally probably like six to nine months hasn't gotten to play the thing i've been playing the game in in 10 to 30 second bursts to test things that i've coded right and and that's all but yeah finally i got to play as of i started on friday went on a, a family trip 
uh, to see some in-laws, and I brought a, a, a copy of Crashlands on my Android device, and I played 13 hours so far. Um, have skipped almost all the side quests and have been just trying to cruise through to get to the end. Uh, but I do need to go back and, and hit those side quests later. But, uh, yeah, so I'm 13 hours in and just so that we can give sort of our, our, uh, listeners an idea of why we did the infinite inventory concept. So far, I, so in 13 hours, I've acquired 25,210 items. 25,000? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I've deconstructed 3,279 resources. I've defeated 1,100 creatures. Uh, I've crafted 2,437 items. So and I guess give, give people an idea of where you are in the scope of the game as far as how far in you are, I guess. Well, I mean, I'm, yeah, so I'm just, I'm just going in like a, in a beeline through the game. I'm not going off to the side and doing any of the side quests or anything like that. So, um, I'd say I'm about a quarter to a third of the way through at this point um so that's 13 hours if you were to you know triple that out it'd be probably about 40 hours for me to get to the end of the game i would assume from this point by the time i'm to the end of the game it wouldn't surprise me if i had acquired somewhere near a hundred thousand items that is insane yeah so and and, you know i i kind of have a maybe a different play style than some people where i just pick up anything that I run past because I can, you know, and this is something that we noticed when, uh, when we had people testing the game, people are so used to ignoring stuff because they have limited inventory space that they, they don't really play the game the same way as we might as the developers, because we know that we have infinite space, right? Well, we and actually so- had to tweak it because originally when you would break open a resource, it's part, it's parts go flying out on the ground so you can see all the, the loot that you got from breaking something. And it used to be that the loot would sit there and you'd go pick it up. And yeah, what right. we saw was that people who were familiar with crafting games that have inventories and that sort of thing would break the thing open looking for a particular thing and only pick that thing up and then run off and do it again, leaving behind all this stuff that's going to be useful for making other things. Yep. And then when they needed that thing, they would come back and reharvest stuff. So we actually changed the mechanics of the game so that when you break something open, the loot still flies out so you can see it, sits on the ground for a second, but then gets automatically sucked into your inventory. Because we right. figured we couldn't retrain people to treat their inventory like infinite in unless we just force them to kind of do it yeah and you can see this in action in the crash lines trailer there's a point where i believe uh there's a garden set up and and then the player throws a harvest bomb into the garden and it just explodes into several dozen i don't know maybe like 50 items just spew all over the place and then they all just suck right into the into the character um and yeah so i've really i'm really enjoying the gardening aspect especially now that i'm in the bog because there's a cool little feature in there i won't i won't spoil it but uh the gardening is freaking awesome yeah there's there's all sorts of explosions involved yeah it's yeah. explosives based farming which we can basically yeah so i'm having a really good time with the game uh no real no real major problems i haven't had any crashes yet or anything uh, so i'm pretty confident that the beta is going to be Smooth, smooth as a luby pig. (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of the beta, the the process is now ongoing. So those of you who are are frequent listeners will know that we closed the beta applications last week. We did our selections over the weekend and have already recruited our 
our uh, beta player group. There are 175 people so far who have registered for the thing. There, that's almost all the ones that that were invited. So we we got a pretty pretty good uh, response to that. And now we're just sort of in these last little phases where Seth finishes his playthrough. Sam and I are finishing up all of the kind of marketing and the the feedback related side of it. So how we can collect information from our beta testers. And uh, this thing is just just moving. And we also found out I think one one other fun note. So we we wrote this story for the game in the past uh, couple months. The story and the, the mainline story and then all these side quests that Seth was referencing that he hasn't actually gotten to go play through yet. <laughs> um, and we realized Seth was noticing uh, just occasional sort of streaks of typos in this thing. And so on Saturday, um, uh, Adam built this proofreading tool for us that essentially just feeds you one line at a time from, from all of the dialogue in the game. You read it, edit it if you need to, save it, and then move on. And we realized uh, we didn't actually understand the scope of how big the thing was that we made, but it's, uh, it's 48,000 words which is actually essentially a novella length. It's a small book. And the crazy thing is, you know, when you're reading a book, you read every line back to back, right? But in Crashlands, you read it in what? You read 10 lines at a time. 10 lines at a time, and then you go and explore for 30 minutes, and then you go (laughs) go read the next batch. Yeah, It's so big. And on top of that, uh, I mean, there's there's other tooltips in the game for all the 500-something items. Uh, which 900, Seth has, 940, 900? yeah. Okay, 940 items. Which I don't even know how big it is. I don't know what we made. What is this? Um, and Seth wrote all the tooltips for those, and there's about 17,000 more words in there. So, yeah, the, the whole thing is just a little... The scope of it, I think we sort of saw a bit, and I guess are sort of understanding a little more as we're actually approaching getting the point to beta, and it's a little weird to look at. It is. But yeah, so I think by the time we hit the next podcast, people will have been playing the game for a while. I'm really pumped. Yeah, no kidding. And it's so cool to get this in actual humans' hands. Yeah, and, and, and terrifying. that's something that to, you know to remember is it's the only people who've played the game so far are me and Sam, and now Seth has kind of started to, and, and a few closer related people to us have kind of started to. But that's it. There's nobody else in the universe has played this game yet, mm-hmm. and and starting very soon, just in a few days, there's going to be you know 100 plus people playing the crap out of this thing. So it's and, very exciting to see what people think about it. Yeah, and I also want to throw out uh, a quick sort of semi-apology <laughs> to the people who didn't get in. Uh, you know, we wanted to get in as many people as we could, but at the same time, we needed to keep the pool pretty small. Um, so I know we, we did get a few messages from people who were a little bit bummed that they couldn't participate. That was but, so uh, hard. That was so sad. Yeah, it was very I sad. know, I know. I mean, we used a we used an algorithm that that allocated a, a point system on basically how active somebody was with all of our games and, and stuff like that. And so we didn't, you know, just sort of play favorites, I guess, so to speak. Um so we we did the best we could, but also bear in mind, you know, if you if you wanted to get into the beta but you didn't, uh it's not it's not all bad because there are going to be some problems with the beta. It's going to be some broken stuff. And also progress in the beta isn't going to carry over to the final version. So, uh, you know, your save would be wiped at the end anyway. Yeah. Right. So if you, You'll put in, you know, anywhere between 20 and 90 hours into the game over the beta. And then when we actually launches, all of a sudden that will just be gone. Yeah. And so. I, think, I think the way to think about it is just that playing the beta is not, you know, getting an early access to a free version of the game it's it's helping in the dev process and that's yeah. really all it is it's about it making a- the game better and it's it's all about the game it's not about anything else but anyway uh so the last thing we have on our news list actually sorry we got two things one is uh we got a documentary about yeah. us yeah <laughs> 
What? Uh, Sam, do you want to talk? You want to talk about this? Yeah. A so, bit? Uh, well, so we got we got uh, approached by this uh, this crew of movie makers called Forever and Astronaut, which is a group of three uh, three guys in St. Louis who have all worked on documentary projects before or, or film in some regard, and they wanted to. They'd heard sort of on the winds about the the story of Crashlands and you know the, the cancer treatments and stuff. Which, for those who aren't familiar, um, Crashlands basically started because I got diagnosed with cancer in 2013, and I just wrapped up uh, basically two years of treatment a month ago, two months ago? Probably two months yeah. ago now. Got a new stem cell system, went through all sorts of chemo, all that stuff. And so there's you know, there's kind of a lot to unpack in here, actually. Um, and they came over and just interviewed us for what they thought was going to be just a quick, probably like a six-minute little ditty, and came away and they were like, oh my god, we just want to, like, we want to tell this story the story yeah yeah they felt like there was just a lot more to talk about than six minutes worth and so So. we uh we opened it up so we we gave them our like childhood movies (laughs) we gave them (laughs) uh we've been doing interviews with them they actually essentially what they're going to do is they're videotaping uh they come in essentially every week and they videotape around these important moments so like when we start doing beta uh, when we actually launch the beta, they'll be here uh, videotaping and, you know, watching this during that time. And the goal is to essentially end up with something something akin to uh, Indie Game the Movie or one of those where the timing happens to be very good for them uh, for telling this story. Because they're going to be here as we go into beta, as we go into launch and the aftermath, whatever that's going to be. And also, as I'm coming up on my 100 days of uh, transplant and all the other health stuff going on there, like, there's just... There's a there's very good timing for a for a storytelling opportunity here. And well, it's pretty cool because it, it it feels like Crashlands has been you know it's it's been in conjunction with Sam with all of your treatment and stuff, mm-hmm. and putting the kibosh on Crashlands and being totally done with it. Um, I think for all of us, it just feels like we are closing that chapter of everything, mm-hmm. and we can finally move on to the next thing. So it's a nice kind of wrap up point. Absolutely. For all and, kinds of things. And they have, uh, the, the documentary crew, uh, whipped up this, this teaser trailer, which we will, uh, it will be up soon. I'll just say it'll be up in a couple of days, uh, publicly available and you'll get it in the newsletter as well. So, so definitely check it out, um, and let us know what you think about it. We're really excited about it and they're, they're a great group of, great group of guys. So we're, we're just kind of stoked out of our minds that that's even a thing that's, that's happening to us. So yeah, yeah. our mind, our minds are being blown regularly. <laughs> uh, oh, and Sam noted the the newsletter, which I don't think we mentioned earlier. Uh, it's going to be our first newsletter. We're trying to get out by the end of the week. That it's the first newsletter in a year. Uh, yep. It'll be nine months. I think. Nine months. Or yeah. really, I mean, a lot has happened in that yeah. nine months. It's a pretty so dense actually, newsletter. It's, it's a jam packed newsletter. The but last newsletter that. we sent was actually uh, right before Flop Rocket on released on iOS, and then it got accidentally featured. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. right. That's right. So yeah. So this is this is our first major newsletter to to all of our people. There's like forty thousand people on the list. Yeah. Um, well, and at that time too, nine months ago, before before Flop Rocket kind of made its little splash, we had three thousand people in B Scotch ID. Yeah. Yeah. So we're today up, we're up we a have bit. <laughs> forty two thousand. Right. Yes. That's not including being spammed by Russian email addresses. Right. That's uh, uh, that's a different yes. thing. That's okay. <laughs> And also we, and this will also be in the in the newsletter. But we have a T-shirt sale coming up. Yeah, uh, we got. The, we'll put the, we'll put the link in the blog. And uh, there's T-shirts, and and they're so comfy. It's kind of ridiculous. Uh, we wear them all the time. These we'll yeah, these in- are the exact shirts that we wear. This this shirt is so freaking comfy that it occupies about two thirds of my wardrobe. Yeah, we each have five of these shirts or something. Mm-hmm. 
We each have a bunch, and I, I, I probably wear one every other day. And anytime we go do butterscotch-related stuff, we all pack all five of our shirts so that it'll, you know, last us through any butterscotch-related event, like a like a con or anything else. And uh, and we just wear them the whole time because they're awesome. The best thing about it though is that they you will you will genuinely get stopped almost anywhere you go because the the two words butterscotch shenanigans are so weird out of context. I mean, they're weird anyway. They're weird, but, yeah. They're weird all the time. <laughs> they're just emblazoned <laughs> on someone's chest. Uh, people will sort of, people will basically stop and be like, "What is that?" And you'll have to figure out what your answer. Yeah, is. Yeah, I mean, we and that's <laughs> that's not that's not exaggeration. I went through I yeah. went through airport security with a butterskirt butterscotch shenanigans. A shirt. butterskirt. I know what our next apparel is. Yeah. A butterskirt shenanigans shirt. And every TSA agent down the security line asked me what what it was. We Sam and I were down at the loop here in St. Louis and some guy across the street saw us and he just yelled. He's like, "Hey, what uh, what's your shirt mean?" <laughs> so, <laughs> so I mean that is kind of a downside, but it's also awesome. It so, is right. awesome. Yeah, every time we go to the grocery store and check out, the cashier's always like, "What what is that?" <laughs> Apparently it's a different cashier every time or one with terrible that, Well, it actually is, you know. I'm in Dallas, so things are Oh, yeah, here. that's true. Everything's bigger in Texas. So keep an eye out for those. They're going to be reasonably priced, especially for how goddamn comfortable they are. And I think only available for a short time. Also. Yeah, we're, we're they're only available up until December fourteenth, so that they can get shipped out for the holidays. And we'll be this is kind of how we're going to sell apparel uh, is just through these sort of these little three weeks or so ordering sprees. Yeah, and then they'll be printed, and we're, that's because we're working with an actual local uh, screen printing shop. So these are all made in St. Louis. By a company called Tiny Little Monster. Uh, we know the people there. They're awesome. They're they're fantastic, actually. And they'll be doing all the printing and, and the shipping for us. Um, should we should we tell about our experience getting terrible shirts and the reason why we switched to this? <laughs> oh my <laughs> they lord! Probably shouldn't say who they came from, but we could definitely talk about the terrible experience. Well, yeah. so there's this concept called drop shipping, which is essentially when you say, okay, uh, like we, in our case, we're a small indie studio. We have a a small but feisty community who's you know interested in supporting us, perhaps buying some apparel, but we can't hold inventory. And the way you bring your prices down for t-shirts and things like that is to essentially be able to order upwards of, you know, 500 or a thousand of them at a time. And if you can't do that, you have to participate, you have to do what's called drop shipping, where you, you, the margins are way lower and the item's more expensive and also just less high quality, just less quality. And so essentially what happens is when you would place an order with us through this previous system, we were trying to work out, the order would go to this print shop in... I don't even remember where it was. Some, some random like warehouse in the United States. Los Angeles. I think it was Los Angeles. And they would they would print it onto the shirt, but not screen print it. And this is very important because- It's some kind of digital something? It's digital. called direct-to-garment, DTG printing. Um, okay. And it's it's been around for a couple of years, but it's still not quite good. It's just certainly not as good as screen printing. Like The prints don't hold up as much. The quality is not as good. The color is not as vibrant. And so we- we looked through a bunch of these options and and found one that we thought, okay, you know, these they have great reviews, so so you know, hopefully that's a legit thing, and they, they let us order samples. So we got our we got an online shop set up through them, uh, got all of our samples ordered, and so we're chomping at the bit. We're and super they excited! Oh my god, they arrived last Friday, and I cannot, I don't know, I'm putting words how disappointed I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was <laughs> especially things. we were waiting. We they were shipped late, right? I mean, yeah, we got it them took an three extra days. couple days. Three days late, and then we were so excited, and we opened up the package, and it was just the biggest bummer. They essentially what what had happened was because they have to print white onto black first, 
in order to get the colors to show up because it's not screen printing so that it's not like big thick ink like you normally get on a really high quality t-shirt like the ones that we're selling now. And so if you don't print this white layer down first, then the colors don't really come out on a black shirt. And the problem is that on all of the samples we got, the white layer, they had sort of like missed after printing the white part. And so there was just this white, weird artifact. Like, a, like an edge. Yeah. Yeah, to everything. <laughs> um, and on top of that, the colors, like we, we just put one next to the actual butterscotch shirt that we'd got from this local shop last year uh, before we went to GDC. And the, the color difference was just so stark. We're like, we can't. We can't ask any. I would never tell sell this to anyone. This is and they're expensive as fuck. Yeah, they were way more expensive. Yeah, yeah. Right now. yeah. about like three Just or four. Terrible dollars all around, all around. Yeah, three or four dollars more, and you'd have to pay for shipping. Whereas now, I think we're selling our t-shirts for I think twenty four bucks, which includes shipping in the U.S. Um, yep. International stuff is obviously you gotta pay for your own shipping on that in that realm. But sorry um, guys, sorry guys, can't do it. But uh, but yeah, so we're we're super excited about these shirt things, and uh, hopefully we'll see some people. See some people on the twits or the Instagrams. I don't know. We don't have an Instagram, but but if no, we, we don't, get one. we don't. If we but did, somebody somebody who uh, gets one of our shirts probably will have an Instagram, and then they That's can true. put pictures of themselves in the shirt on the Instagram. Do do social media at us, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, and then the last thing is so we have we have a whole bunch of podcast questions, uh, but before we get into those, we have a little announcement about podcast questions, Adam. This is your domain. <laughs> it's my. I'm the, I'm the web tubes guy. He so, controls the intertubes. That's right. We found that uh, that so we have the system where people can ask questions and you know in our podcast list and they can get upvoted by other people. And then what we do every week is we choose the ones on the top of that list and we just we just start at the top and just start answering them and working our way down. And that's how the system works. So this is fine. It's great. We don't have that many people who are participating in it. So the the number of questions has sort of stayed kind of small and it's been fine. But the recently those numbers have started going up. And if we're lucky and people get really into this podcast, then of course they'll keep going up. And we don't want to have a giant, huge mountain of stuff, especially because the things that people don't upvote will then just kind of sit at the bottom forever. Forever. A long way to say that we're going to start letting those questions expire. I think we're doing four weeks. So if your question does not get answered in four weeks, it will never be answered. It It doesn't mean you couldn't then, you know, ask a similar question again. But the, you know, there's probably a reason to get answered, which is that it didn't get upvoted enough for for us to answer. Yeah. And and of course, this may it may be the case that uh, if we get too many listeners and we may have to bump that down to, say, two weeks so that we uh, just keep a constantly revolving set of questions yeah. Flipping in. That'll be great because, of course, that means that the questions will get better because and they'll be what our listeners want to actually hear. And so it'll just make the podcast better. So that's going to be fine. It's going to be a little bit of a drag if you ask a bunch of questions and they all get deleted. But the fact is we can only answer, you know, five. Yeah, I mean, it would be the same anyway. as if they didn't get deleted because they would have just sat there forever and never but gotten answered feel, anyway. It feels different, you know, when, when your, when your uh, thing gets deleted versus just hasn't been answered. Just think of it as if your question just got recycled back into the rainforest of the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You were you're helping the environment. Um, all right, so let's hit let's hit some questions. Let's do it. And uh, these questions all come from our players and podcast listeners and they're submitted through podcast.bscotch.net. So uh, if you do want to get your questions onto the podcast, then head over there and ask away. And we also have a cool little upvoting system. So if your question has already been asked, uh, you can you can upvote somebody else's question and and uh, move that to the top. So 
Let's get started. First question comes from Mia Kitty, who asks, Have we already asked about the weirdest creature you guys designed, even theoretical creature, before you decided it was too ridiculous? Does too ridiculous for Bscotch even happen? Did it actually get made into art, or was it still a concept and scratched? So mm. kind of a multi-layered question. <laughs> but, the but it's general all about ge- the most ridiculous thing. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that we made that was really, really crazy well, and didn't put it in? I, I mean, most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't fall into this is too crazy. It usually, so there's, there's occasional, do you remember the urchin, Seth? The yeah, urchin was, yeah, I can never forget it. It haunts my nightmares. <laughs> so, uh, so it's the ugliest was, thing I've ever seen. <laughs> in Quadrupus Rampage, there's this, uh, there's this blue, bluish purple urchin thing and when you when you're close to it then it has spikes out and if you run into it then it'll hurt you and i made the first iteration of it i made i don't even know if i call it an iteration i don't know what the hell it was but it was just i literally took like a circle and then just put some triangles on it that's about as much that would be how i would describe it (laughs) and i i sent it over to seth and he just kind of looked at me you know with his face. <laughs> well, I have to be I have to be careful when Sam sends me art because he has this philosophy of I only do things once. So I have to be careful with my feedback because my feedback normally can't be this is terrible, do it over mm-hmm. uh, because that completely goes against Sam's art philosophy. But I, I had to. I had to say it. <laughs> Seth just kinda of, I think you just started laughing actually after a moment. Yeah, you, you were, were like, pissed. What? is this and i was like it's an urchin what does it look like and you're like <laughs> definitely not that and, and uh i don't think we ever go too far into into ridiculous stuff i think every so often something just hideous will come out just yeah just hideous beyond your wildest dreams or nightmares and and that's what we have to like not put in the game but we don't actually do any concept art or anything so it's kind of just if that happens to get made then Usually I'll pass it over to Seth or Adam and then I'll get, you know, denied because it's truly hideous and uh, and that'll be the end of it. Well, I mean, outside of the art side of this thing, though, we just from, you know, from the game design perspective, we, we design really weird stuff all the time. But a lot of it is is sort of uh, as a joke when we're talking, we're doing design stuff and everything else, because our, our design discussions get really weird, especially the longer they go on or the later and, into the night. They and go. later into the night. And so we, I mean, we, we you know, live streamed our uh, most of our development time for Do You Even Lift, our elevator simulator, uh, which, again, you can go vote for at bit.ly slash elevator sim. We talked about it last week. Give it five but, stars. Give it five stars. <laughs> so we, uh, so when we made that thing, the, you know, the conversation got really ridiculous. And part of that ridiculousness was this whole idea of making an elevator sim in the first place. But that wasn't even the most ridiculous thing we talked about. It was just, and, and, you know, as it went on and as we were talking through and developing through the weekend, we would come up with just tons and tons of just weird, hilarious ideas that weren't even really intended to necessarily be in the game. It's just that every once in a while we take one of those things and decide to put it in the game. Yeah, I think it's it's good that we we're, we're very free about just popping off popping off random ideas and then sort of shooting them down. Also, I mean before before anything actually gets made, I think everything hits a verbal concept stage, but that's about as far as most things get. Yeah, thankfully. Yeah, I, w- I would say though to kind of answer the question of you know does too ridiculous ever happen? I don't think so. I mean, we have a game that involves a sloth being tased and ridden across a lava flow by a rat. Yeah, yeah I, um, I think it really, the, the reason that we scratch things is exactly uh, what Sam was saying, where, where either the, the art somehow didn't come out right 
or uh, after we've come up with the idea and then start to implement it, we realize that it's too involved to make. Mm-hmm. But but we've never had a point where we're like, this is just too weird. That's I don't think any of us have ever, <laughs> ever said no. that phrase. It, it was never – it was too weird. I mean, there are a lot of things we reject out of hand because they're not even entertained seriously in the first place. Probably yes. most of our design ideas are exactly that. But in terms of things that we intended to be – parts of a game and then decided not to there aren't very many of those. we have had things that turned out to be too depressing and we yes scratched like we talked those. about in last week's podcast yeah, yeah so we go back and listen to that. <laughs> yeah we we try to keep things light so yeah. ridiculous is good in that sense um okay uh next question comes from kevin 888 who asks what are your thoughts on clones which by the way this is a timely question mm-hmm. uh what are your thoughts on clones of games not people have you ever had a game cloned? What would you do if one of your games was cloned? Oh, well, fancy you mentioned this. Maybe Kevin's the guy. Maybe Kevin is the voodoo guy. Yeah, so so uh, there's something called the Unity Asset Store, which if you're a developer who uses Unity, you can go onto the Unity Asset Store and buy assets. Pretty much anything you want. Code, shaders, 3D models, uh, God knows what else. And we found, well, actually, our, our music guy sent us a link to something on the Unity Asset Store for $10 called Cloney Rocket. It mm. is a full-on clone of Flop Rocket with all the source code included and everything, which means if you have Unity and you go to the Unity Asset Store with $10, you can get all the code to make your own clone of Flop Rocket right now. Plus, really terrible art. It looks, so yeah, you'd have to replace the art and everything, um... But I don't think any of us were upset about this. I feel like it's like maybe when you're a D-list celebrity who gets mentioned in the tabloids for the first time. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's vindicating. You're like, oh, we've turned a corner. We've gotten cloned. But do you guys think, do you think that clones actually have any kind of a detrimental effect on the original? Uh, I mean, I, I think they definitely can. I mean, you look at the case of, of like threes. Vlambeer. Yeah, Vlambeer with Ridiculous Fishing. Um, threes. I mean, a lot of these, though. So Threes was a really simple game that, that it by itself didn't gain a lot of traction before all the clones. It was so easy to clone that people cloned it literally within a hours day, and yeah. days. Well, and the, I think the crux of that problem was they launched it as a paid game when it was a very, very small, very simple puzzle game. Yeah, and so people cloned it, but then made it available for free. And then so most people ended up playing a different version of that of that same game. With Vlambeer, it was a different thing, though, because they got cloned before they launched. Yeah. Because they had this awesome game idea, which is, if you haven't played it, you definitely should, which is you use the phone tilt sensor to just control kind of where your lure is uh, as you go fit, you know, you throw your lure in the water, it sinks all the way to the bottom, and then it gets drugged back up to the top, and you just kind of move it back and forth to try to catch fish and not catch bad things. But then it's particularly fun, because once you get them out, they get launched high into the air, and then you shoot them with machine guns. (laughs) Or fishing with fishing with chainsaws. Or chainsaws, you know, whatever. It's all kinds of ridiculous stuff, and so it, it matches its name perfectly, ridiculous fishing. It's hilarious. And so they and this was, I think, a year in development or something. Um, and uh, before, well, well before they were going to launch this thing, they talked about it and showcased demos of it and all that stuff. They start building the hype train, right? They start building the hype train. And what happened was that, that the concept itself was simple enough. Or in terms of the, the, just the number of mechanics in the game and that sort of thing. It's very simple, actually. It's very simple. And so people started to clone it because they saw this cool thing. It didn't yet exist in the store, so there was a niche for it. And they started making it and putting it out. 
for threes, you know, it's a little tiny puzzle game. They were they were selling it up front. That, that game by itself probably wouldn't have been that successful anyway. And it was actually the clones that really made it successful in, in, a, in a game that people know about. But Ridiculous Fishing is a really beautifully made game. You know, the mechanics are very tight. It's very good. And... It would have been, it ended up being very successful anyway, but it probably would have been much more successful had it gotten there first. Yeah, I believe it, the, it invented the niche, other people filled it, and then it came in after the fact. Yeah, the other one was Ninja Fishing, I think, was the game that, Is that what did. It was? And they made, I think that game made $2 million before, <laughs> right. before Lambeer's version. Yeah, but you know, there was a whole bunch of press around the fact that this injustice had happened, and it brought Ridiculous Fishing into a lot of people's consciousness. I think it, it brought Vlambeer to the forefront in the dev community, too. I mean, I, yeah. I had never heard of them before that, even though they've been around for, for a while. And, uh, and it wasn't until that because, because Rami, Rami, who's one of the, the main dev guys, um, essentially just started going and giving talks about how, you know, this insane thing that just happened to them and how they were, like, they were terrified of this doom. And then when everything sort of turned around, you know, when they, they got featured by the App Store, um, the game was a big success. And so when everything sort of turned around, it became this really interesting story that a lot of the indie devs uh, wanted to hear and wanted to rally around and that sort of thing. And so they got very prominent in the dev community. Right. But had they not had that drive and interest in being part of the dev community or the drive to keep on going after somebody stole their idea and all that kind of stuff, that you know that, that original cloning event could have very easily just destroyed their studio. Yeah, absolutely. And taken them out of games forever. In a very bitter they, sort they of played way. It, they played it right. <laughs> they played it right. And, and that can happen sometimes if, you, if, you, if you're able to play it right, which is partly on you as the developer but in large part it's on you know chance and and what the environment looks like right. uh, if, in terms of uh, what people are interested in in the media about games and all that kind of stuff and i mean part of the reason why we like we we really enjoy and we're very excited to be starting to show a lot more of of crashlands but part of the reason we're not worried about this particular thing is because the game is so big you're not going to see clones. Well, yeah. people who in, people who create clones tend to target small games with easy mechanics that are easy to reproduce uh, because it's a shotgun approach, right? So if you if you make clones, and actually when we went to GDC, we chatted with with a guy who uh, uh, who we thought was press, and he wanted to, he said he wanted to interview us and stuff, and then when we talked to him, instead he just wanted to show us all the clones that he's been working on. <laughs> Uh, and he had probably a dozen different games that he had cloned. Among the weirdest conversations I think we've had. Yeah, it was and, particularly. And uh, each of those games makes a little bit of money. Um, I think you're not going to, you know, break the bank and and make a killing on. No, it's, it's actually cloning, a losing you know? battle most of the time. The the only reason it can be successful is because games like like Flop Rocket that just got cloned, they have a very short memory in the app stores because mm -hmm. they're little arcade games, and so they they get so like in the case of Flop Rocket, it was super popular for the week it was featured. And then plummeted over the following weeks, yep. and uh, and then that was the end of it. So now, if, and and now, sure, all those people know about Flop Rocket, but nobody else does. It's not a game that's kind of stuck around in people's memory. And so, if somebody goes and makes a clone of it, and it's essentially a new game, it's essentially a new game as far as the population knows. Right. But at and, the same time, the uh, you know the the team at Apple who decides what games get featured, they remember Flop Rocket. And if you make a clone of Flop Rocket and try to get it on the front page, which is where you can really make money, uh, they're going to be like, no, yeah. we already we already featured this. Yeah. So it's really <laughs> so, a losing pop. Uh, you know, it's a it's a losing proposition to base your your development on clones, and that, it's also why we're not super worried about it. Because even games like Flop Rocket that get cloned, uh, you know, one thing that they can't do is clone because. 
And I guess we should probably clarify what a clone is. A clone isn't literally just the game copy. That's piracy. That's a different thing. Yeah. Cloning is when somebody tries to replicate every aspect of your game that they legally can get away with. So if you well, do basically all the mechanics clone, with yeah, different the mechanics art. and the controls and the game plan and everything else. But so if you imagine taking Flop Rocket and just replacing all of the art. It's essentially, yeah, that's what it then is. That, that's what a clone basically is. And it, so replacing all the copyrightable content. But then, of course, you can't just do that because that would mean they would have to have our code and then they would just replace the art. They don't have our codes. They also have to recode the thing. So so a clone basically tries to recreate an existing game by rewriting the code and then by putting new art and music and other kinds of assets on top. Mm-hmm. And so what this means for us, especially, you know, one of our big focuses has been to make a brand around our games where all of our games have a constant theme. They're all in the same universe. They all have, you know, Sam's constant art style and the same humor. And so people can't legally replicate that because all of that is copyrightable stuff. And so, sure, they can make a game that plays exactly like Flop Rocket and is really dang close in terms of what the stuff is that they put in there. But it ain't Flop Rocket. But it's not Flop Rocket. Taint so floppy. In the end, we'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> the, yeah, the fact is we can't, even though that when they do release a clone of Flop Rocket, it'll be as if they released a new game. The closer the clone is to Flop Rocket, the less likely the App Store will feature them. So who cares? So who cares? But if it's kind of further away, but it's still a clone, and then that game is successful, that also doesn't matter because that's not competing with us. We don't get to launch the game again anyway. That's the only way we can make money doing yep. this. But I also want to say clones are in... They're a mixed bag because... So we have we have a, a genre of game called the MOBA, which is actually effectively... They're all clones of... Uh, Dota, Dota. Yep. which was a Warcraft 3 map mod. Uh, League of Legends really brought the MOBA, you know, into the forefront. And every other, it's like freaking uh, Heroes of the Storm is effectively a clone of League of Legends with some tweaks to some mm-hmm. of the, the mechanics. I think at a certain point, once a game gets cloned widely enough, then it becomes a genre. And that's, that's yeah, really I mean, all if you look that at, that look at the, you know, call of, like the Call of Duty games versus... What what are the other ones? They're all, all of the first person generic first person shooters at this point. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Right. I mean the, the mechanics are no are not particularly different. It's different content and different skin, right? It all started with Doom, you know. Right. And you right. and you don't you don't hear of these games referred to as Doom clones. They are first person shooters. The meaning of clone is gonna differ per person, right? In the case of this Flop Rocket clone, it literally is like, there's no way you could look at that and say that this isn't just literally a clone of Flop Rocket. Plus their title tells you that that's what it is. It's called Cloney Rocket. Every every piece is the same. It literally looks like they took Flop Rocket and just used different art. I mean, and not even that different, right? Just a different art style slightly. And not as good, but you know, but different art. So... But they do have flying mooses. And they have flying mooses. Camels. Camels. Oh, sorry, camels. But if you you were to look at something like Dota versus League of Legends. Those are using the same basic mechanic and premise, but they don't it, it's not really just one thing reskinned. Right, they're in a, right. they're in the genre, right? They're, Which is yeah, the interesting thing. You start yeah, sharing so, the similarities between. Exactly. When you have a collection a collection of mechanics basically makes up a genre, right? And so all those games have the same collection of mechanics, but they're implemented differently. They all of their assets are are different. They've made completely distinct design and mechanic choices in a lot of different cases. So this is actually interesting to think about though because when you have a really small game, it will tend to get cloned because the cost of creating it is basically zero. Right. Right. But when you have a larger game, like a, like a MOBA style game, right? There's enough mechanics in there that if you assemble a dev team 
and have the resources to create something like that, it's too risky for you to just copy paste everything. Yeah, because now you, you have to, to fight you have something to that's entrenched. Yeah. Yeah. So with games that have much more involved mechanics or are much more complex, uh, you see that sort of genre thing happen where cl- sort of clones appear, but they have some modifications to them to make it a new thing, right? With smaller games, you just get clones, clones, But clones. if you look at like uh, Crashlands, this is an easy example of this as far as uh, the way that it plays is very different actually from most other games in this genre, but they're also, because of where it's sort of landed, where it's in this this 2D um, sort of uh, almost portrait portrait view, but top-down survival game sort of thing the closest thing that people have been pointing to and always have is don't starve which you can guarantee i mean when we launch you're going to guarantee that people are going to say oh this is this looks like a lot like don't starve and then you're also going to get people who say oh this looks a lot like a behemoth game and there'll be people who say this is just a don't starve clone right and they'll be very angry about it and we'll get lots of letters because it's what people do on the internet but spoiler alert we don't care (laughs) I think everybody, you know, people use, people just kind of use whatever comes first. I think the difference between, the difference between a real clone is just exactly what we're talking about, which is essentially like, you just took, you literally took the game elements and put them in, you know, in a different flavor is really what it is. But uh, if you want to, if you want to remake Flop Rocket, you can do so for 10 bucks over on the Unity Asset Store. Mm -hmm. Well, it's on sale for 10 bucks. It's actually listed $30. $30. Yeah, or if you want to just play Flop Rocket, you can just do that for free. Uh, Racing for the Finish asks, uh, would you rather have hands for feet or feet for hands? Ooh. I think it, this one's too obvious. Is yeah. it, though? Yep. Yeah, I mean, hands for feet, for sure. Absolutely. But, I mean, what are you going to do with those hands? Whatever I want. I can walk on them, for start. I, could, I think you can use hands as feet, but you can't use feet as hands. Yeah. Have I mean, you, I think but have you ever tried to walk on your hands before? I mean, feet are built for... Well, let me you ask know. you this. Have you ever tried walking on your hands while they're attached to your ankles? <laughs> no. Because I, I think that's a different Yeah, because otherwise you setup. have to be upside down if you want to do it when they're attached to your arms. Also, can we just mention right now that so I'm looking at my feet because I'm thinking about this. And they're pretty weird. That, yeah, that's actually super weird because they're essentially long, stubby hands. Yes, they have, and they have duplicate. They're all the same bones, right? Uh, you have the well, same. Well, it's even bones the same bones. It's so, like I notice this when I when I look at my dog at her feet. It's all the same bones as in a person's hand or foot, right? Mm-hmm. It's just they're all stretched out weird. And <laughs> yeah, and like they have a little tiny useless thumb claw thing that's like four inches up their leg for no reason. You know, uh, evolution is weird. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know. I think I think you know, having to choose to replace my hands with feet. Obviously, I don't want to do that. Well, and and I think I, I think it's that. telling because you asked, have you ever walked on your hands? But because that's the only thing you can do with your feet. The, yeah. If you flip the question around, you'd be like, have you ever played violin with your feet? Have you ever sewn? But you've seen, but you've seen you those people, played- people who, who have lost their arms or something like that who end up getting dexterous enough with their feet that they can, right? That they actually yeah. write and stuff with their feet, which is which is crazy cool. Yeah. So I mean, but that's but that's but, a pretty. But I mean, is, that's a pretty big accomplishment to be yeah, able they to write just, as <laughs> if they're using if they're as if they're right-handed trying to use their left hand, or but more accurately, as if they have hands they're trying to use their feet. Yeah. But here's the thing, though. So technically, you kind of already have. What I'm saying is that you already kind of have hands for feet. You just haven't used of. them like that. You, but the 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 important <laughs> the important things about hands aren't really present in no. feet. <laughs> 
like dex- <laughs> I mean, dexterity. Te- technically, yes, you have all the same bones and stuff in there, but I don't think practically it works out the same. So I think for me, hands for feet, hundred percent to the max. Yeah, with no three no out of three. Uh, I would I would even have hands for elbows and knees. Yeah, I just I have could. hands everywhere. Yeah, get all handsy. <laughs> Maybe have a hand for a nose. Be like yeah. one of those weird star moles. <laughs> right. Uh, Mia Kitty asks, what's your favorite thing, character, creature, art, whatever, you've ever designed, even if it never got included in any of your games so far? Mmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I We've made so many things now. I don't even know. I I like, so we made a, we made this game prototype called Captain, which was a space game. Yeah. Uh, which didn't pan out because we actually had no plan for what the actual mechanics of the game were going to be. We, which is actually how Crashlands started also, but we stuck with Crashlands long enough to, <laughs> to make it into a game. And we didn't do that with Captain. Uh, but Captain had some pretty cool alien races in it. One of them was called the Oohawk, which oh, were yeah. these weird, almost rabid wolf-like monsters well, who's the the grumpy guy who lives in the trash can in sesame street oscar the grouch yeah they were they were like vicious oscar the grouches yeah they were all scarred up and they had sort of like messed up eyes and uh and their their portraits in the game were awesome like they had this weird kind of vibrating like and their teeth were constantly gnashing and and then we also had these aliens called the squeege <laughs> and they were these, they were these weird little pink and purple bulbous guys that had one eye, and they were very squishy. And all of their spaceships were uh, similar. They were like these squishy biological spaceships. I hope that we can get these things I into still, a future. Yeah, I, mean, I game. still think one of my favorite things we've ever made was uh, well, the, the two of the games that came out of the Butterscotch Jam from a year and a half ago, which were. Shucks, I crashed my spaceship, and now I have to explode heads until I find all the parts to rebuild it. Right. Um, so I can just go home. Right, so I can leave and go home. Uh, which is a stealth game where you play as an alien parasite who basically has a ride. You have to sneak around in bushes and things and then ride uh, commandos who are after you into force field zones where they've sort of contained your ship parts and get the ship parts. And it's a very short little thing. Uh, it takes like a minute and a half to beat once you actually can, can beat it. Probably takes about 15 minutes to learn it enough. But I love just the whole feel of the thing was hysterical. And then well, one of the other games. Of that, we mm-hmm. should remake it with the new intellectual property we've created, which is the Haga Riders. Yeah. Mm. Which are featured in Do You Even Lift? Would you, in, in the remake, would you be a goop? I think, yeah, yeah totally. you'd be a goop. Yeah. And you'd be eating heads of, uh, Space space mercs, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But so one of the other games we made during that time was the uh, the game I can't see shit. Oh yes, where you're it's a blind platformer, so you play as a as a completely blind character who runs around basically shaped like a pear. It's like this little ugly eyeless pear thing, and you have to scream in order to uh, send echoes out to figure out where the ground is. And so you're actually like the game is completely empty most of the time um and you have to sort of you build the world as you run and, and scream constantly and bump, bump into things and that sort of thing i i'd like to revisit that at some point but i've actually noticed there's kind of an upsurge of games without graphics like that mm-hmm. uh, and when we went to in february we went to a local event called the six pack demo night where people were demoing uh games here in st louis 
And one of the games was very similar to that. It was a first-person game with no graphics, and the entire way that you navigated was through sound. So it had positional 3D uh, audio, and you had to, you know, basically, I think you had a couple commands you could do to hit stuff or throw a rock or something like that, um, and you had to listen to stuff and try to figure out how to navigate the the levels, which is a pretty cool idea. And was I think it a horror game. No, I was think, it? Well, I mean, I think it was because I mean, it's terrifying. I'm pretty sure that's true. I'm pretty sure that's there's true. something chasing you, or so there's some some otherworldly something going on. <laughs> Uh, I feel like the, to me, that's like an Octodad situation, right? Where it's just like, here's just a normal mundane task. Go from point A to B. But it's really, really hard for some odd reason. Mm -hmm. Like you have no, you can't see anything. So that was pretty cool. But yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll revisit that. All right. So we got time for one last question, which also comes from Mia Kitty. So she's three for five this time around. Australia number one fan. (laughs) Mia Kitty asks... What con would you like to attend most as an attendee and as a studio? Can be two separate conventions. Uh, well, I think this is very t- this is a very timely question because PAX South is coming up in January, and it's a part of the reason why we're doing the T-shirt runs and trying to get crash runs out as soon as we are. Uh, is because we we really like to actually be able to go show up at PAX because we've never done a player facing convention before. We did Indie PopCon, but that was more. Games were sort of a side note. Yeah, it was the a very U- small convention. The YouTubers games. took over. They really yeah. did. And so uh, we've never actually been to a convention that was for uh, gamers. We've been to the game dev convention, of course, but but that's a very different scene. That's more business oriented. So I think, I mean, all of us have talked about, we, we really want to do something where we can actually go and connect with the people who, who you know, play our games, who, who enjoy the worlds that we build, who who essentially support us and keep us alive. And actually getting some face time with them, I think would be so... It'd be so cool. Oh, it would just feel so good. So many butterscotch high fives. And, I, and like we've talked about in uh, in previous podcasts, you know, as game developers, we don't really get to go on tour generally. Uh, not like a musician would or, you know, like a book signing tour or something like that, like an author does. Uh, so that would be our sort of equivalent of mm-hmm. going on tour and actually getting to meet the people that play our games. So right. we definitely want to do that. I would love to do that. And there's, uh, I mean, I posted a video of this in the forums, uh, I think last week, which is there's this guy who makes movies, Olin Rogers, and he makes these hysterical movies on YouTube. He got a very small audience. Like most of his videos get, I mean, comparatively, he gets like 150,000 views um, for these videos. And he actually makes most of his money off of merch and those sorts of things. His, pe- his people basically directly support him. He doesn't do any sort of branding of things and, and uh, big company hire stuff. And he put together, he he wanted to do, he basically had the same question we had, which is, you know, I'm. he said, I'm a, I'm a YouTuber. People like this don't go on tour, but I'm like, that's what I want to do. I want to go meet the people who actually support me. And he organized this thing called Eat a Slice with Me, where they did a tour across the United States. They've got a van and they would go and sort of set up shop in these various locations where they would sell merch and then they they got just tons of pizza and people would just show up and they you know, they started having like a thousand people show up at these things toward the end of it and apparently it was just you know probably one of those one of those once in a lifetime sort of uh, experiences as far as getting to travel across and meet all these people and connect with the people who actually you know put you where you are in a really real sense so I think all of us have a have a pretty keen interest in doing something something like that with the cons i think uh, i think we will do it once we manage to secure a purple van that we can put golden or yellow stripes down the front <laughs> the butterscotch and, van and we'll put a big bs on the side of it <laughs> and we'll we'll drive to our 
various destinations. Mm-hmm. Or even better, when we can afford our own jet, which we can paint in a similar style. Yeah, but I think you got to move up. I think you got to start at the van, and then it's private jet. Yeah, it's a, I guess it's when a, we want to do our cross-country, or I guess international tour, we're going to need that jet, though. Yeah, we're mm-hmm. going to need that jet. Can't really function <laughs> to get over to Australia, you know, without getting without your own jet. You know, how do you get by? You know, <laughs> uh, what about what about conventions to just attend? I like GDC. Yeah, I, honestly, I love going to GDC. I mean, the fact for me, it's like, I don't know. I, I don't get really super hyped up about other games actually, uh, mostly because I know they're going to come out, and I'd rather just play them when I can. But, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, not that you shouldn't get hyped up about Crashlands, obviously. You should. So for me, like I love GDC because we get to meet a whole bunch of people who are trying to solve the same kinds of problems that we're facing, or people that we get to look up to that have already solved them, uh, or people that we can help who haven't solved them yet. And so it's a lot of fun from that perspective. Yeah, GDC, by the way, it's the Game Developers Conference, for those of you guys who don't haven't heard of it. But it's uh, it's really interesting because like whenever we go there, we spend the first couple of days going to talks, and then we meet with people all throughout but by the time we're about three days in, we're so freaking antsy from like we've just taken in so much knowledge and interesting ideas that we're just really, really pumped to get back to work and apply all these things. Mm-hmm. But then we're stuck there for a couple more days and it's really sad. It's, it's very frustrating. Um, but it, it tends to be good for like, you know, thinking about stuff. Yes. But another weird thing that happens. And, and so a reason why it's good for thinking about things, uh, is that the stuff that you hear at GDC is often old. So there's this general sort of rule of thumb that we try to go by, which is the uh, the three-year rule, which is if you hear something at GDC, it's probably three years old uh, because somebody had an idea and then they spent a year developing it. Then they got it to a point where it was feasible and they spent a year executing it and making it really go somewhere. And then after that point, somebody noticed who organizes speakers for GDC and asked them to come to talk about it at the next GDC. So uh, by the time you hear something at GDC, it may be for a project that's been out for for years, um, and the stuff that they talk about may not even apply anymore. Mm -hmm. But it might. So you have to really think hard about the stuff that you hear there. Uh, So it fosters a lot of really interesting discussions and and whatnot. Okay, so I think we're going to call it there. We have run out of time. Come back next week and we'll have another podcast for you. And also, if you want to check out our games, you can head over to games.bscotch.net. We also have a very active community over at forums.bscotch.net. So hop in there and uh, say hello. And if you want to get your questions in the podcast, head over to podcast.bscotch.net and ask away. Thanks for listening and we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Peace. Goodbye.